Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa salatu wa salam ala ashrafil anbiya'i wal mursaleen wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Alhamdulillah, welcome back to our Ramadan series, Conversations from the Qur'an. This will be the third part to our introduction. And hopefully tonight, inshallah, will be the last portion of the introduction piece. And tomorrow, inshallah ta'ala, we'll start with our first conversation. So everything kind of worked out, worked out fine, alhamdulillah. Let me see if I can just move this over. All right. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, kathiran, tayyiban, mubarakan fi kama yuhibbu rabbuna wa yarda. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyil Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira. Both of the previous episodes have now been uploaded to YouTube. Can you turn the knob just a little bit to brighten it up a little bit in here? So if you guys want to go back and you want to review. Yeah, that's a lot better. If you want to go back and review the uh, previous discussions, you can see them now on YouTube. Uh, I will um, upload the audio to Anchor, which is, a, um, I believe, a, a feature of Spotify. This is our podcast, The Maradia Show. Uh, so you can always, and I'll share the link for that as well. So you can listen to the audio. If you're driving, you want to listen to the audio. Uh, or if you are at home and you want to stream it on your TV, alaikum then you can do that. Okay, so we're still talking about the importance of dialogue or these conversations, what is known in the Arabic language as hiwar, conversation or dialogue. So we're gonna talk in this particular part of the introduction about the importance of dialogue from a literary standpoint, all right? Any readers in the building, any avid readers, writers, then you know how important dialogue is. Dialogue is what makes reading you know, what reading is supposed to be. Dialogue is what, make, what makes writing, you know, intriguing, you know, what makes reading intriguing. So dialogue is a technique um, that authors use in their writings for a number of reasons. Uh, in particular, to keep the reader intrigued and drawn into the narrative. Otherwise the story becomes fodder for useless chit chat and fluff, right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the disbelievers and their approach to these narrations that were mentioned in the Quran and the narrations that were mentioned beforehand. And it's, it's important for us to understand this so that as Muslims, we don't fall into the same type of thinking when it relate, as it relates to the, you know, these stories that are in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Surah Al-Mutafifin, Surah number 83, ayat 13. Turn to Surah number 83, ayat 13. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذَا تُتْلَى عَلَيْهِ آيَاتُنَا قَالَ أَسَاطِيرُ الْأَوَّلِينَ And when our signs, our revelation is recited to them, they say, oh, these are just tales of old. These are just fables. These are just narratives that 
we found in all of the old books and they kind of diminish you know the importance of these conversations these are real life incidents that were that took place on earth that were captured in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's final revelation these are not fables these are not tales of the old right so dialogue is a literary tool or device designed to convey a character's thoughts and or speech dialogue displays ideas and is not forced in the quran some of the dialogues that we read or the conversations that we read are conveying ideas and concepts and paradigms which create which have deeper meanings than usually what is intended in literature all right so when you look at the Quran and you look at these conversations that we are going to explore in the Quran, they are, they are, there's a reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala captured this little portion of that conversation or that portion of that conversation. And why did Allah only capture that specific portion of the dialogue? Because there is a concept, there is a, a paradigm, there is a some type of uh, understanding that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to convey to us through that particular conversation or part of the conversation. Sometimes uh, dialogue is used uh, is used as uh, one second. I hope that didn't interrupt. All right. So sometimes uh, dialogue is used to have an emotional impact. So when you read it, you're affected emotionally. All right. For example, the story of Medium, right? If you anybody familiar with the story of Medium, Surah number 19, a whole entire chapter in the Quran named after this woman, right? She is a very great woman in Islam from the Islamic standpoint, from Islamic teachings in, in, in uh, our understanding. Medium holds a tremendous place, right? In our religion. I don't know. It's just like, give me a second. It's like every time somebody calls um, my phone. Give me one second. All right, so let's try this again. Okay, so sometimes dialogue is designed to capture you emotionally, to have an impact emotionally. For example, like the story of Medium, right? Because the story of Medium, it involves pity, it involves, you know, an undeserved misfortune, right? So when you read the story of Medium, you're reading about this. 15, 16 year old girl who goes through this entire ordeal and you're like, wow, you know, and although it came out great for her on the, on the back end, but at the beginning as she's going through it, even down to the pregnancy, even down to, you know, being isolated from her family and going off to a place in the East and, you know, being approached by this young man. And then, you know, some information just kind of being dumped on your shoulders, dumped in your lap, you know, and sometimes people do that to us. You know, they'll just call you out of nowhere or they'll just send you a message, text message, and just dump some information in your lap that you were not prepared for, right? Um, and in the case of Medium, she was told that she was pregnant, 
right? And her response was, how can I be pregnant when no man has touched me? How is this even possible, right? You can hear, you can hear the, the, the pity. You can hear, you know, that pain in her voice. Even from the Quran, as you read, go, you scroll through the ayats in this story, you can hear the pain. You know, how is it that, uh, that I'm pregnant? And no man that not only did she say that I, I have never been touched by a man before, meaning I have never been married before, but she also said, and I am not known to sleep around. So she had to throw that disclaimer out there. I've never been married before, and I don't sleep around. Right? I don't sleep around. You know, uh, when the Prophet used to give the women shahada. All right, he used to make them take bay'ah. They used to take an oath of allegiance. And from a list of the things that they had to take an oath is that when they converted to Islam, that they would not steal, they would not lie, they would not hide a pregnancy, you know, from their previous husband, nor would they commit zina, nor would they come into Islam committing fornication and adultery. And, and by God, how we are in need of those stipulations in today's time. Uh, could you imagine we we would not accept the person shahada in today's time if they came into Islam, you know, and they were already engaging in fornication and adultery? Could you imagine how many people would not even be Muslim? Could you imagine how many people we would turn away from Islam if they came to Islam to take their shahada? And we said, you know, there's a condition, there's a prerequisite to becoming a Muslim, and that is not committing zina. As the Prophet Sallallahu used to take an oath of allegiance from the women during that time. You know how many people would not be Muslim? You know how many people come to Islam already engaged in haram relationships and we embrace them and some continue on with haram relationships even after they convert to Islam? And when the Prophet Sallallahu he said that you would not, you take an oath of allegiance that you would cannot commit zina, you would not commit fornication and adultery, Hin, the wife of Abu Sufyan, who converted to Islam, she was appalled. She said, tazni al -hur? What, what, a, what a free woman commit fornication? What time? She was insulted. It was an insult because to her, a woman who was free, a free, independent woman, this is behavior that was beneath them. She said, would a woman who's free fornicate? <laughs> What woman who is free fornicates? That's the behavior of slaves and servants and those from the lower tiers of society. That's not the upper class. That's not the upper tiers of society. They don't engage in behaviors like that. She was insulted. And in today's time, it would be an insult for you to ask somebody, is they married? That would be an insult. You married? What? No, me? What? No, please. Marriage? What? Marriage? To ask a Muslim, are they married, is an insult. SubhanAllah, when marriage should be the standard, we accept nothing less than that. As a Muslim woman, there is no title, no status that you are more deserving of other than wife. To accept anything less than that is to disregard the pedestal that God put you on. To disregard the pedestal that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put you on. I mean, my goodness, Allah obligated on you hijab that no man can see you without Allah's permission. You understand? And Allah's permission is a contract of marriage. No man can see you. 
So when a woman wears hijab, you're not wearing hijab for a man. You're wearing hijab for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Rabbul Alameen, Maliki Yomiddin, the king who has crowned you with the hijab and has obligated on Muslim men that they follow a particular system, a particular protocol in order to get beyond the hijab. And you have Muslim women today, you know, and unfortunately, who will remove the hijab for the smallest little gesture of kindness or, you know, goodness. You know, he spits some good words or he gives you a promise. We're going to get married. We intend it. And off comes the hijab. La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. Anyway, uh, Maryam's situation involved pity, misfortune. And so right away, we connect with her story. We connect with her journey. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in surah number 19, ayat 23, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem Fa'aja'aha al-makhadu ila jidhin nakhlam Qalat ya laytani mittu qabla hadha wa kuntu nasyam and Maryam took herself to the tree, a date palm tree. And she said, in a fit of being overwhelmed, I wish I had died before this and been a thing forgotten. So I didn't have to go through this pain. You can immediately, when you're reading that story, you immediately identify with that. If you're going through something in your life, I'm almost certain that that story has gotten many Muslims through many rough days, through many dark nights, whether you male or female, it doesn't matter. Also, the story of Hajjah and Ibrahim, when Ibrahim had to leave his wife in the valley of Mecca with a newborn child, right? And he walks away from you know her as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded him to. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? And you have Muslim men today who will walk away from their wives like it's nothing. Like it's nothing. For the smallest little infraction. Walk away like it's nothing. And never look back. Ibrahim, alayhi salam, tasked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to leave his wife and his children in the barren valley of Mecca. And as he's walking away, Hajjah says to him, Ila aina ya Ibrahim, where are you going, Ibrahim? Where are you going? He can't even turn around and look her in the face. And Hajjah says to him, Allahu amraka bihada. Did Allah command you to do this? Ibrahim nodded, yes. She said, Fadhab idhan fa inna Allah la yudhiyyna. Go. Allah, this is a rada die. This is the one you keep, right? This is the one you keep. Go. Because if Allah told you to leave me here, then Allah will never neglect me. Allah will never abandon me. Go handle your business. And in today's time, you leave out of the mess. You go out to go pray salat in the masjid. Your wife, where are you going? You can't just pray here. It's like, I'm supposed to pray in the masjid. Yeah, but can't you lead your aren't, aren't you supposed to leave your wife, lead your wife in salat? You're making me compromise. But she said, go. Because if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded you to do that, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala got me. And Ibrahim alayhi salam, he goes behind the mountain and he, you know, as a man, as any man would, feeling pain, having to leave your family, 
and he raises his hand and he makes dua. Allah captures that dua in Surah to Ibrahim. Surah named after him, Surah number 14, Ayah 37. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says that Ibrahim, and remember when Ibrahim said, Inni askantu min dhurriyati biwadin ghayli di zara' inda baytika al-muharram rabbaka rabbana liyuqimu salat Oh my Lord, I have left some of my family. Notice he said, some of my family. Some of my family. Because that was only one half of his family. He had another wife, Sarah, who was in Palestine. Right? And he had to go establish his wife, Sarah, who would later give birth to Ishaq and establish all of the lineage of Beni Israel and all of the prophets and messengers that would come from that particular area in uh, Palestine. But the dua that he made, you can hear the pain in his voice as a man. So right away when we hear these dialogues in the Qur'an, we immediately gravitate towards it because it appeals to us. You can hear the pain in the story of Prophet Nur, which we're going to cover that conversation as well. In Surah number 11, Ayah 45, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَنَادَى نُوحُ رَبَّهُ قَالَ رَبِّ إِنَّ إِبْنِي مِنْ أَهْلِي وَإِنَّ وَعْدَكَ الْحَقِّ and remember when Nuh called out to his Lord and said, oh, my Lord, indeed, my son is from my family. You told me to take my family and get on the boat. My son is from my family. And indeed, your promise is true. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, he is not your son. He's not your son. His deeds are unbefitting, unbecoming. Your family are those who believe like you believe and do righteous deeds. That's your family. Not those who disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Quran conveys these emotions, these sentiments, without giving too much of the dialogue. If you notice there's a line or two, two or three lines, you don't get a whole surah of dialogue, right? You get a few lines of dialogue because too much dialogue tends to cause the reader to lose the moral of the story. So the Quran gives in most places where there is dialogue, where there's conversation, a few lines of engagement just to convey the concept as these conversations are not for the purpose of entertainment, but for the purpose of education. Dialogue in traditional writing styles serve a number of purposes and perform several crucial functions. So let's see if we can identify some of those uh, functions in the dialogues that we find in the Quran. Number one, dialogue is a way for those who are speaking to reveal themselves through their words, through the words that they use. So you know who's the authority, who's the subordinate, who's in pain, who's at peace. From the dialogue, you can, you can ascertain who's who in the conversation. So when you look at the conversation between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Musa, very powerful conversation. Surah number 20, ayah 12, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And when Musa came to the hill where he saw the flame burning, he saw the bush of fire, and he was called, Ya Musa. He's hearing Allah subhanahu He's hearing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's voice, literally giving me chills as I'm saying this. He's hearing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's voice. Yeah, Musa. He comes to the burning bush and he hears a call. Yeah, Musa. Uh, 
excuse me forgot and I have chosen you. He said, Indeed, I am your Lord. I am your Lord. Remove your sandals, remove your shoes. You are in the sacred valley of Tua. Remove your shoes. You're talking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Remove your shoes. You're in the sacred valley. I've chosen you for myself, so listen to what is being conveyed to you. SubhanAllah, I think this is a conversation between Musa and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So here you can see who's the authority, who's the subordinate. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the authority. Take off your shoes. You're in the sacred valley. Listen to what I'm about to say to you. You can hear the authority and you can see who's the one that's not in authority. Number two, in dialogue, it is a way for people to reveal or foreshadow future events that involve danger or conflict, similar to what we see in the conversation between Prophet Nuh and his son. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that Nuh, he calls out to his son, Ya He said, oh, my son, get on the boat with us and don't be amongst those who disbelieve. Same thing as parents, we tell our children all the time, stay with the Muslims, stay with Islam, stay close to the masjid, stay close. And sometimes our children give the same response that the child of Noah gives to them, gave to him, and that is that, I got this, I'll be okay. Sa'awi ila al-jabli, yahsimuni min al that I will betake myself to this mountain over here to protect me from the water. And Nuh says to his son, There's nothing that can protect you today from the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is him communicating with his son. Powerful dialogue. And when you read that, you can see in that dialogue that he's telling of some imminent danger that is coming. And the son is not paying attention. And the son was eventually drowned right in front of his own father. And Nuh had to live with that. Nor had to live with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's decree the same way that many of us have to live with the fact that many of our children are misguided or, mis, uh, or led astray. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide our children back to Islam. May Allah guide the Muslim youth back to Islam. Allahumma radda shabab al-Muslimin ila deenihim raddin jameela. May Allah return the Muslim youth to their religion with a beautiful return. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala return our children back to Islam with a beautiful return. But Regardless of what happens to our children, much like Prophet Nuh salam, we still got to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though Allah tells us no. Allah has a right to tell us no. We beg and beg and beg when we see our children going in the wrong direction. We in our rooms making dua, oh Allah, protect my child. Oh Allah, guide my children. Oh Allah, keep my children guided aright. Oh Allah, keep my children on the straight path. And then off our children go off the straight path. Drinking, smoking, partying, drugging, hanging out, whatever. Not praying, not fasting, not regarding Islam, not reading the Quran. No hijab, no beard, no nothing, nothing from Islam. And no matter how much dua we make, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still tells us no, and we still got to worship. That is the ultimate of humility. That here you are begging God for something. God is looking you in your face and telling you no. And you still got to say, okay, still got to worship you. That's a hard pill to swallow. 
as a human being. And as one of the scholars, he said that I love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so much. That I love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so much that if Allah was to put me in a hellfire, I would tell people in the hellfire that I love him. Because the punishment, I probably deserve it. But it does not infringe on my love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala one iota. It does not infringe on my love. Whereas some people experience punishment from Allah, some people experience a test from Allah, and they use that as an excuse to blame God. Why me? What did I do to deserve this? I obey you, I pray, I fast, I do what I, I give charity, I give sadaqah. What did I do to deserve this? SubhanAllah, as if Allah can't tell you no. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu no. The Prophet ﷺ said, I made dua to Allah for two things. One of them he told me no, the other one he told me yes. He said, I made dua that Allah allow me to visit my mother's grave. And Allah permitted me. His mother, Amina, died as a, as a mushrik, as an idolater. He said, I asked permission to visit the grave of my mother. And he permitted me. He said, and I asked Allah to forgive my mother. And he told me no. You got to live with that. So when people say, oh, my mother wasn't Muslim or my father didn't die as a Muslim, you know, there's nobody who can say they're going to hell. There's nobody who can say, and we're making dua for them. How are you going to make dua for your non-Muslim parents when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu he wouldn't forgive his non-Muslim parents? Who are you? This is al-Mustafa, al-Mukhtar. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He was chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the best of the prophets and messengers. He's not just a prophet and messenger. He is the best of the prophets and messengers. He is Sayyidul Mursaleen. He is the leader of the prophets and messengers. He is the one who all of the prophets and messengers were lined up in Baytul Maqdis, waiting for him to come from Mecca all the way to Baytul Maqdis to lead them in Salah. You understand? He walks through the door of Baytul Maqdis Adam, Musa, Ibrahim, Ilyas, they all lined up in ranks waiting for him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, to walk through the door and lead them in salah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him, no. Who are you? Who am I? Subhanallah So dialogue is a way for people to reveal or foreshadow events that involve danger or conflict. And the conversation with Prophet Ibrahim السلام, and the two angels, the story number 51, ayah 30. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And Musa said to the two angels who came to visit them, You know, what's your, what's your deal? Oh, you messengers. And we have been sent to a people who are criminals, who have been given to immorality and indecency. To rain down on them brimstone from the heavens. This is a conversation between Ibrahim and the angels, foreshadowing some imminent danger that was on the horizon. Dialogue number three is a way to display tension and intensifies the plot to draw you as the reader in further as the conversation between the two ensues. The example of this is the conversation between the two sons of Adam, Habil and Qabil, right? When Habil, he said to Qabil, لَإِن بَصَطَّ إِلَيَّ يَدَكَ لِتَقْتُلَنِي مَا أَنَا بِبَاسِطِي يَدْيَ إِلَيْكَ لِتَقْتُلَكَ 
inni akhafullaha rabbal alameen. He said that if you stick your hand out to hurt me, I will not stand, extend my hand out to hurt you because I fear Allah, Lord of the worlds. There's a conversation between two brothers about some something that is about to be intensified. A plot drawing you further and further into the plot. This is for people who read but don't know how to read. Those who read but don't know how to read. Now, what do I mean by that? There's an art, there's a skill to reading, especially when it's a narrative reading. There's a skill to that. Many people open up the English translation of the Quran and they just read, but they're not reading the way that reading was intended, the way dialogue and conversation was intended. You have to be in it in that moment. And you have to look at the dialogue between these two people and how it's intensifying, how it's growing, how it's escalating. So he says to his brother, if you stick your hand out to me to harm me, do some harm to me, I will not respond to you by sticking out my hand to hurt you. Indeed, I fear Allah, meaning I still have to obey Allah if you choose to disobey Allah concerning me. If you choose to disobey Allah concerning me, I have no other recourse but to obey Allah concerning you because I still have an obligation. So you fine, you can do whatever you want to do. Curse me out, disrespect me, talk, talk all types of crazy to me. I can say nothing more to you than salam. Just don't put your hands on me. That's it. You're good. You can say whatever you want to say. Just don't put your hands on me. Other than that, you're good. You can say whatever you want to say. As one of the scholars, he confronted another scholar about backbiting him. And he said, Ibqi he said, leave room for us to reconcile. Like, don't go too far and you're insulting me. Leave room for us to reconcile. He said, for in me, that I have no other recourse for someone who chooses to disobey Allah concerning me other than to obey Allah concerning you. This is the, the route you choose to go. That's on you. But I have to continue to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concerning you. It's almost like Uthman ibn Affan. Wallahi, I hate even... I hate even bringing this up, using this example, but subhanAllah, it's the ultimate example after the Prophet ﷺ of a man who chose to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even though Muslims or those who claim to be Muslims chose to disobey Allah concerning him. Don't you know when they sieged, when they besieged the house of Uthman, don't you know that they wouldn't even let any food or water come into the house of Uthman? Don't you know Uthman was trapped into his house for days? With no food, no water. They allowed water to come to Earth Man. They said, send him some water. But they gave him dirty water. And Ma and Netin. They gave him dirty water. And they sent a, a bucket of water into the house of Earth Man. And Earth Man, he says, SubhanAllah, when the Prophet said, Whoever purchases the well of Ruman, then for him is paradise. I purchased the well with my own money. They got to the battlefield and they got there first. And of course, when you're going to war, you want to settle where water is because you get to drink, you get to feed the soldiers, the animals, they get to drink. So you get to the water first, you got home court advantage. So they get to the battlefield and there's a well there. But the well belongs to two poor Arabs. And so the Prophet ﷺ appealed to them, give us the well and let me give the soldiers something to drink. And they said, this is how we feed our family. We can't give you the well. The Prophet ﷺ said, all right, cool. How much you want for it? How much you want for it? They gave a price. 
The Prophet ﷺ went back to the Sahaba and says that whoever purchases the well of Ruman, then for him is Jannah. Uthman said, I got it. Uthman says, SubhanAllah, I purchased the well of Ruman so that the army, the soldiers could drink and feed the animals. And at this particular juncture, you give me dirty water to drink. SubhanAllah, they set Uthman's house on fire from each corner, set his door on fire. And as they kicked down Uthman's door, before they did that, the Sahaba, Ali, Abdullah bin Zubair, many of the Sahaba were still alive. And they, they suited up because they were ready to defend Uthman. And Uthman told them, go home. No blood will be shed in the cause of Uthman. Go home. He sent the Sahaba home. They told Uthman, if you put on ihram and head towards Mecca, perform hajj or go perform umrah, they'll leave you alone. Just put on ihram and go. Uthman said, wallahi, these people, they are so misguided that even if they see me with my ihram on, they're still going to kill me. These are Muslims. These are Muslims. He said, if you stay and fight, then blood will be spilled in the name of Uthman ibn Affan. I can't have that. Go home. He said, the only other option I have is to die right here. And that was based upon the shara of the Prophet ﷺ, glad tidings of the Prophet ﷺ, when he said, when he climbed on the mountain of Uhud, and there was Abu Bakr or Umar and Uthman, and Uhud started to tremble. And the Prophet ﷺ put his foot down on the mountain of Uhud, and he said, Uskun ya Uhud. Be tranquil, O Uhud, for indeed upon you is a prophet, a Siddiq, a truthful one, and two martyrs, meaning Umar and Uthman. And Uthman said, I am totally comfortable with the martyrdom that the Prophet promised me. I'm okay with that. Go home. Meaning, if you choose to disobey Allah concerning me, I will do nothing more than to obey Allah concerning you. They kicked Uthman's door down. Uthman was fasting because he had no food. He was sitting there reading Quran and they busted in the door, swinging a sword and cut his hand off. He went to block the sword and cut his hand off. His hand fell on the floor. Blood from him spilled on the Quran, Ayat and Surah Al-Baqarah. And he eventually killed him. But the point that I'm making is that Uthman he did not want to disobey Allah concerning them, even though they chose to disobey Allah concerning him. Nonetheless, uh, number four, dialogue. Uh, the ayat that we're going to cover uh, with the dialogue between uh, the two sons of Adam is Surah number five, ayat 28. The dialogue, uh, number four, is uh, the way that relationships are forged. Dialogue is a way that in which relationships are forged. You can't have a relationship with someone if there's no dialogue, if no one is talking, no one is communicating. Everyone believes that they're right. My perspective, I'm right, you're wrong. You can go for the I'm right and you're wrong and you will always be alone. Or you can go for a compromise, a healthy compromise through dialogue and communication and you can ride off into the sunset happily ever after. It's your choice. It's your ego. Versus happiness, your choice. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran in Surah number 4, ayah 35, 
that in the event that husband and wife fall into conflict, what should they do? That bring forth an arbiter from her family and an arbiter from his family and let them have dialogue. If they want rectification, reconciliation, then Allah will give them tawfiq to have that. But that can only happen after conversation, communication, dialogue. Not before. So dialogue is one of the ways in which relationships are forged, which relationships are salvaged, and perceptions are challenged and sometimes changed, like the conversation between Musa and Khidr. Number five, dialogues are for, or number four, dialogue is for the purpose, or conversations are for the purpose of reconciling and changing perceptions. How in the world can you change somebody's idea or perception or paradigm if you don't have a conversation with them? In the Muslim community, we tend to just write you off and say, you are astray, you're, you're practicing Islam wrong, and that's that, instead of engaging the person to try to help them have a better understanding. We, we, don't, we don't all see things the same. As you think about, for example, the story of Prophet Musa and Khidr, Right, Hither, uh, Hither did some things that Musa was completely gone. <laughs> right, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala captures in the Quran, Surah number 18, ayah 74. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, <laughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, so Musa and Khidr, they continued along their journey until they came across this young boy. Young boy hadn't even reached the age of puberty yet, and Khidr killed him. Qatala. The, the hadith, the scholars of hadith, the mufassirun say that he beheaded him, literally cut his head off his body. A kid beheaded him. Musa saw that, and he said, <laughs> You know, you killed a pure soul. You killed an innocent soul without any due right. You have done something that is heinous, immoral, despicable. And Khidr uh, turned to Musa and he says, you know, I told you you weren't going to have the ability to, carry, you know, to go along this ride with me. I told you that. Didn't I say to you, that you would not have the patience that is necessary along this journey? And he, Musa said, all right, the, the second time when he drowned the boat, and then the third time when they wanted to, Musa wanted to take um, compensation for building up the wall. And Khidr said, no. And Musa said, well, why not? Why can't we just, you know, they don't want to feed us. They don't want to take us. They don't want to honor us as guests. Why not just build the wall up and get money for it? Khidr said, this is where we go our separate ways. But I'm going to inform you about all of the things that took place. If Khidr had not taken the time to explain to Musa why he did the things that he did, Musa would have been left in hayra, in utter confusion. But you see what Khidr did, he took the time out to explain. Sometimes you have to, number one, take the time out to explain, and number two, you have to be willing to listen. If you're not willing to listen because you think that you got the whole picture, you got it all figured out, you're going to spend your entire life 
by yourself. You're going to spend your entire life lonely because you got the world all figured out. You don't want to hear anything anybody else has to say. So one of the purposes of dialogue is to change, you know, mindsets, perspectives, you know, and the Quran provides us, you know, with some of the most interesting, you know, and intriguing dialogues and conversations. So this series is going to help us develop a better and more intimate relationship with the Quran in that we will explore some of these conversations with the intention of extracting some of the jewels, some of the benefits that are embedded, some of the, the guidelines, Islamic guidelines and principles that are embedded in these stories that will help us to govern our lives as our lives intersect with the lives of other people, whether those people are Muslims or those people are not Muslims. This is what we get from the Quran, guidance. This is where the guidance of the Quran come into play, that we go into the Quran, we pull out what we need, and we use that to govern our lives as our lives continue to intersect with different people, starting with our family, starting with our children, starting with you know our spouses, starting with you know our neighbors, and then our colleagues, and our friends, and companions, and then, of course, the larger community of non-Muslims in the world as well. You know, the Quran has to be a reference we have to be Quran oriented. We have to be Quran oriented, divinely oriented, meaning we use the Quran as a reference when we find ourselves in situations. What would the Prophet what did the Prophet do in this situation? What did Ibrahim do in this situation? What did Musa do in this situation? And when you familiarize yourself with these stories, it's easy for you to pull from these places. It's, you're not sitting there wondering, well, what would Muhammad do, right? No, you're, you can pull from these places and you can, you know, you can guide yourself, you know, accordingly. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says in the Quran, in Surah number 20, ayat 99, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That likewise, we narrate to you. Indeed, we narrate to you, O Muhammad, the narratives, the narrations of those people who came before you. And indeed, we have given to you from us revelation. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Prophet sallallahu we give to you the stories of the prophets of old, the people who came before as a guidance for you. And if it was a guidance for the Prophet sallallahu then without a doubt, it's a guidance for us. So we will categorize these conversations based upon the themes that are outlined in the weeks of Ramadan. There's a hadith that is narrated in the Sahih of Ibn Khuzaymah. And although this hadith is uh, Sheikh al-Bani, he graded the, the narration as da'if, as weak. However, I'm only highlighting the fact that we come into Ramadan one way and we usually leave another. This hadith, as many of you are familiar with this hadith, it, it was stated or reported as that the Prophet ﷺ said. And you notice when I mention the hadith that is da'if, I don't attribute it to the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet never said anything that was weak or fabricated. Everything that came out of his mouth, as he told one of his companions who came to him and said, you know, the, the Jews, they used to make fun of us because we write down everything the Prophet said. And they say, how can you write down everything a man says? He gets angry. He's happy sometimes. Meaning he's a he's biased. It's hard for a human being to be impartial. 
So how could you write down every single thing a human being says? The Sahaba were affected by that. So they went to the Prophet and said, you know, they tell us, they make fun of us and say that we write down everything you say. And the Prophet said, He said, write everything that I say. He said, because I swear by Allah, nothing comes out of my mouth except the truth. Nothing. So the Prophet never narrated anything that was da'if. It might be da'if for a technical reason. Nonetheless, if you find that a hadith is da'if and it cannot be strengthened by other narrations, then we do not say that the Prophet said. We say that it was said that the Prophet said. So it's not actually attributed to him directly. So it was reported, it was said that the Prophet said that Ramadan is a shahar, is a month. The beginning of it is mercy. And the middle of it is forgiveness. And the latter part of it is being freed from the hellfire. It's being freed from the hellfire. And as Sheikh bin Baz mentioned that there is some truth to this because Ramadan comes in and we come into the month of Ramadan searching for the mercy and forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And towards the latter part, is freedom from the hellfire and we know that if we find Laylatul Qadr that that is the night that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala frees more people from the hellfire than any other time. So there, although the hadith or the narration is weak, there is some other references that substantiate the points or the principles that was mentioned. So in this narration it mentions that the beginning part of Ramadan is mercy, the middle part of Ramadan is forgiveness, and the latter part of Ramadan is freedom from the hellfire. So based upon that narration, I broke down or categorized these conversations that we are going to explore based upon that. So the first week, which will start tomorrow. So from tomorrow all the way up until next Friday. All right. That will be week one. And week one will be concentrating on forgiveness and mercy and purification of the soul. Because usually when we come into Ramadan, that's what we're looking for. We're looking to purify our souls, to reclaim our souls, and to get Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness and mercy. Usually when people come into Ramadan at the beginning, their souls need a bit of fine-tuning, all of us. Our souls are tattered and bruised from sin and disobedience and subsequent distance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and distractions from the dunya. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions three types of souls in the Quran. You can look, listen to these three different types of souls and then you can identify where you fit in there. And then I will let you know how much work you need to do. The first type of soul that Allah mentions in the Quran is what is called the nafsul mutma'in, the tranquil soul, the peaceful soul. This is the soul that does all of the acts of obedience, does all of the sunnah recommended voluntary acts, Stays away from all of the acts of disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the soul that has been living in complete peace and tranquility. If that's you, then alhamdulillah, Ramadan is just going to add to that. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Fajr, Surah number 89, Ayah 27, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya that 
فادخلي في عبادي وادخلي جنتي Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Oh, you tranquil soul. Oh, you soul that is at peace. Ya ayyatuha nafs al-mutma'inna. Irji'i ila rabbiki radiyatan mardiyya. Return back to your Lord. Please with him and him being pleased with you. Fadkhuli fi ibadi. Enter among my trusted servants. Fadkhuli jannati. And enter into my jannah, into my heavens. SubhanAllah, very beautiful passage from the and Surah Al-Fajr. Nafsul Mutma'inna. If that's you, then alhamdulillah, praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's you because that's not many. I promise you. Not many. The second type of soul that comes into Ramadan is the self-reproaching soul. The self-reproaching soul is the soul that does all of the acts of good deeds stays away from the major sins, but finds himself periodically time here and time again, time in and time out, falling victim to some of the minor sins. Stays away from the major sins, but periodically finds himself tussling with some of the minor sins. As Sufyan al-Thawri, he said, he said, I never uh, remedied something that was more difficult for me than my soul, my desires, because sometimes it gets the best of me and sometimes I get the best of it. If that's you, you know, you ain't doing nothing major, but periodically you find yourself falling into the minor sins. You do everything that you're supposed to do in terms of obedience to Allah, all of the commandments of Allah, you are fulfilling all of that. But every now and again, you find yourself slipping into some of the minor sins. And make no mistake about it, to continue committing a minor sin over and over again, it becomes a major sin. The scholars, they have a saying, La sagheera ma'al istighfar wa la kabira la kabira ma'al istighfar wa la sagheera ma'al israr that there is no major sin with, except uh, if, as long as you make forgiveness and there is no minor sin if you continue to do it. It's a major sin. A minor sin that you continue to do over and over again will eventually become a major sin. As the Prophet Sallallahu said, the example of sin is like a man who settles in a valley and he needs to spark a fire so he can cook and he goes and gets one twig and he gets another twig and he gets another twig and another twig until he has a full flame, that he, a full fly, a full fire, right? But you keep adding those little twigs, those little twigs add up. So be mindful of al-israr, continuation and, you know, insistence upon committing minor sin. But a nafsul al-lawama, the self-reproaching soul, it was mentioned in surah number 75, surah al-qiyamah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins the ayah by swearing by yawm al-qiyamah. La uqsimu bi yawm al-qiyamah. La uqsimu bi yawm al-qiyamah. La uqsimu bi nafs al-lawama. And I swear by the self-reproaching soul. And Allah swears by the self-reproaching soul as a means of praise because that's a good thing to hold yourself accountable. You, you self-blame. Reproaching means to blame yourself, to find fault with yourself. You don't sit back and wait for somebody else to do it. You do it. Self-reproaching, self-blaming soul. Right? You hold yourself accountable. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, although in light of mentioning that this person commits sin time and time and time again, but he also holds himself, she holds herself 
accountable. And the third type of soul. So if you are that soul coming into Ramadan, then alhamdulillah, you can identify now exactly which category you fall into. And the third type of soul is the soul that's just beat up. Soul that's just battered and bruised coming into Ramadan. So I want you to ask yourself this question as we conclude this lecture. How are you coming into Ramadan? What type of soul are you as you stumble into Ramadan or you walk into Ramadan or you run into Ramadan, you know, from the dunya? You're running full speed ahead into Ramadan and some people are tripping all over themselves, running. You know how you know how people in those scary movies like Jason, Freddy Krueger, when they're running away, they're tripping over everything, falling over everything, trying to get away from the dunya, right? You're trying to get into Ramadan safely. That's some of us, you know, afraid the last soul is an-nafsu al-amaratu bisu. And this is the soul that inclines towards evil. This is the soul that constantly leans towards sin and disobedience. The moment they, you know, it's like sharks to, to blood. The moment you see some disobedience going on, you just immediately find yourself inclining towards it. You can't help yourself. You can't help yourself. You have zero discipline, no self-control. The moment you see disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala going on, you incline right towards that thing. You can't stop yourself. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the surah to Yusuf, surah number 12, uh, verse 53, Allah subhanahu is constantly inclining towards evil, except those whom Allah has mercy on. And this was the statement that was uh, uttered by Yusuf when Zulaikha finally confessed that she was the one that tried to seduce Yusuf. And Yusuf tried to make light of the situation because he saw how uncomfortable she was in that situation. And he said, La nefsi, and I don't hold myself to be innocent in all of this either. Right? Even though he was innocent, but he was only saying that because he sees this poor woman in this situation. He sees this woman in the situation finally owning her wrong. And when you see a person owning their wrong, you have no other recourse, but your heart naturally inclines. You want to see that person free from that situation because you can see the genuineness. You can see, you know, how sincere they are in that situation. Nobody wants to see a person being beat up by a situation. Nobody wants to see that. But when you see a person owning their wrong, naturally you just incline towards them. You want to help. You want to assist. And so when she said, you know, I, you know, I was the one that seduced him. And Yusuf, in that moment, in that moment, very uncomfortable, he said, La nafsi. I don't hold myself to be innocent in all of this either. This is almost akin to us saying, you know, well, we all make mistakes. Right? When you're just trying to make light of the situation. Because it's very uncomfortable, it's very awkward. You don't want to be the one standing out like, yeah, you were wrong, just own it, just admit it. It's like, nah, we all make mistakes. We, we, we all, you know, we're, we're all guilty of that at one point or another. You're just trying to make light of the situation so that the person doesn't feel singled out, doesn't feel isolated. 
doesn't feel like, you know, the, the weight of the world is on their shoulders in that moment. But you want them to know, like, you know, we all make mistakes. We, we've all been down this road before. We've all done things wrong, even though that was not his situation. And then he said, in the that the soul is constantly inclining towards evil, except those whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mercy on. So these are the three souls that Allah mentions in the Quran. You can look at those three souls and find out where do you fit in. And then based upon where you fit in, you know how much you have to do while you're in Ramadan. If you made it, you made it here. Alhamdulillah, tomorrow we may be praying Salatul Tarawiyah tomorrow. You made it. You made it. We all made it. You made it. You made it into Ramadan. No matter how you come, you made it. Whether your soul is tattered, battered, bruised, or you come in, mashallah, and Ramadan is just a fadila, it's just some extracurricular activity built on what you have already been doing. Whether this or that, you made it. Bask in what Ramadan has to offer. Bask in the virtue of Ramadan, that all of the gates of paradise are about to be opened. That moment when the crescent has been sighted, all of the doors of Jannah are open. All of the doors in hellfire are closed. Majority of the shayateen are now chained up, binded, chained up with sulsilatul shayateen. Most of them are chained up, those who cause the most fitna on the earth to give us an opportunity to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in peace. In peace. And given all of that, some people still find a way to bring their fitna right along with them. What happens is many of us are traumatized by shaitan. Traumatized. And you know when you're traumatized, you carry with you what is called baggage. Trauma baggage. You bring it right along with you into Ramadan. So you're traumatized. And shaitan causes as much trauma as he can to the soul. So that even as you make your way into Ramadan, your soul is so battered and bruised that you don't even realize that you bring in your trauma right along with you. You don't even realize it. He's beat you up so much, has traumatized you so much that even though many of his, you know, his counterparts, his, uh, you know, his, his soldiers are chained up, you are still so battered and bruised by the damage, by the trauma that shaitan has caused to your soul. You don't even realize that in Ramadan, you still haven't unpacked your bags. You got to be aware of who the real enemy is and the type of damage, the psychological, spiritual, mental damage that he is doing to us on a daily basis, man, working on us constantly. You got an enemy who can see you and you can't see him, but you have an advantage. We have an advantage. What is our advantage? Huh? No, Shaitan is your enemy. He can see you from a place where you cannot see him, but he sees you. So he has that advantage. What's our advantage? We know who he is, yeah. But how does that help us? Hmm. What's our advantage? Our advantage is, is, Allah mentioned it right in the Quran. 
He has no power or authority over us. The only people that he has authority over are those who lack sincerity. As long as you are sincere, he has no authority over you. He said what? He said, I will lead every single one of them astray except those of your servants who are sincere. If you remain sincere to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's nothing he can do to you because your sincerity will always garner Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's help. Always. Allah will always help you. Not to mention part of our advantage is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exposed all of his trickery, all of his plotting and scheming. So now you know what to watch out for. He beautifies evil, he beautifies wrong, makes it fair seeming. So we know when something looks too good to be true, it usually is not. It's usually not. We, Allah gave us everything we needed. We don't take advantage of that. Shame on us. We have nobody to blame but ourselves. So week one, give you some a list of the conversations so you have know what to look forward to. Week one, first conversation we'll talk about, which we'll start tomorrow, is the conversation between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the angels. The first conversation that ever happened between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and someone from his creep creation and that was the the conversation between Allah and the angels is about prophet adam and that story is about forgiveness that story is about forgiveness it may not look like it on the surface but i promise you once we get deeper into that conversation you'll be like wow i never even looked at it like that. when Allah told the angels i'm going to put on the earth a khalifa that conversation right that one little conversation i was about forgiveness May not look like it on the surface, but it's there. I promise you. The second conversation that we will visit will be the first conversation between man and God. And that is the conversation between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Adam. And that conversation is about remorse. The main characteristic of Toba, the essence of Toba is remorse. The third conversation will be between the first conversation that happened on earth between two people, and that is the conversation between Habil and Qabil. And that conversation will be about envy. Envy and regret. The fourth conversation that we'll have is the conversation between Prophet Ibrahim and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this conversation will be about putting your heart at ease. And this is the conversation when Ibrahim asked Allah, show me how you give life to the dead. Powerful conversations. Number five, and this is probably one of my favorite, uh, the fifth conversation we'll have within the first week of Ramadan will be the conversation between Salman, uh, Salman the son of Dawood, and Bilqis, the queen of Sheba, the queen of Saba which is in Yemen. And this conversation will be centered around finding peace after finding God. Because uh, this is a conversation between a king and a king, a king and a queen. Because Bilqis was a king, she was a queen. She ruled over the people of Yemen. And she's gonna have a conversation with a king who was a prophet 
Prophet Suleiman. SubhanAllah. Very interesting conversation. Conversation number six will be between Prophet Musa and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When Prophet Musa asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to show me yourself. I want to see you. There's a conversation that took place between Musa and Allah. When Musa asked Allah, show me yourself. I want to see you. And this conversation is centered around the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Conversation number seven for our first week will be between Yusuf and his brothers. And this is about forgiveness, forgiving others. Week two will be about gratitude, steadfastness, and building our relationship with Allah. Because second week into Ramadan, that's what it's about. We're grateful, we're, you know, because now that we've had, you know, fasted for about a week, you know, we in it now. And now you can have time to kind of reflect how grateful you are that you made it into Ramadan, how grateful you are that you're a Muslim, how grateful you are that Allah blessed you with Islam, how grateful you are that you're still here no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how bad your life may be, you still hear you gave, Allah gave you another day, another opportunity. And so the first uh, conversation we'll have in week two will be the conversation between the companions of the two gardens in Surah to Kahf. Ashabul Jannatain. One Allah gave a garden to, the other one Allah gave two, gave two gardens. And the garden put forth, put, put, put forth produce and everything. It didn't fail in anything. And one of them, you know, said to the other, you know, I'm better than you. Lack of gratitude. And Allah stripped him of everything. Conversation number two in week two will be the conversation between Musa and Bani Israel. And this is where the name Baqara comes from. And that is the story of slaughtering the cow. This is why Allah calls it Surah Al-Baqara. Because it's an incident regarding Prophet Musa commanding Bani Israel to slaughter the cow. And Musa's reminding them of their obstinacy and their arrogance and how much Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them. Their ingratitude. Conversation number three will be the conversation between Prophet Nuh and his son. Conversation number four will be between Prophet Ibrahim and his father. Confronting the ones that you love about the one you love. He confronted his father, who was an idolater, about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'm coming to confront you, and I love you, but I'm confronting the one that I love about the one that I love even more. And number, uh, what's that, six, uh, will be the conversation between Suleiman and the ant. Another conversation about gratitude. Week three, now keep in mind, some of these conversations may go maybe a day or two. Uh, I don't think that I'm gonna get through most of these conversations in one lecture, all right? Uh, week three will be about seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's help and trusting in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And our first conversation will be between uh, the Prophet sallallahu wa sallam, the Prophet sallallahu wa sallam and Khawla bintu Tha'laba, suratul mujadila. A conversation between the Prophet sallallahu wa sallam and as she complained to him about her husband. Number two will be the conversation between Yusuf uh, and his brothers about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala favored him and he never rubbed it in their face. Number three, the conversation between King Talut and Bani Israel, their lack of patience 
with the water. Number five will be the conversation between Yaakov and his sons. And those are just some of the conversations. I pray that we can get through all of them. If not, then this will be a continuation for next Ramadan, provided that I'm still here. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give me life and allow me to see next Ramadan, inshallah ta'ala, that we will continue because this is something that we can we can continue going. There's so many conversations in the Quran. We can never stop. So, inshallah, we'll stop here, 719, ta'ala. So tomorrow, inshallah, will be our first conversation. And that is the first conversation mentioned in the Quran, uh, as well as the first conversation mentioned in the Quran chronologically, because it starts, that conversation is right at the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah. So it's actually the first conversation in the Quran, and it's actually the first conversation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran about him conversing with someone from his creation. Please do not ask me to repeat those conversations again. <laughs> you can always go back to the recording and you can jot it down, inshallah ta'ala. And I just gave those to you as a heads up, y'all, so that you can, you know, as the days are moving forward, you can say to yourself, okay, well, that's the schedule. You know, what is he going to talk about tomorrow? What conversation tomorrow? And you'll, you'll know ahead of time, inshallah. Any questions, comments? How do you guys feel about this? Good topic, relevant? Huh? The way we read today, you know, uh, we keep having the comprehension, reading comprehension, having the main idea. Some of those basic uh, rhythms that we learned in school uh, have been lost from the basic perspective. Not knowing how to repost, you know, and taking things out of context. So it's very important to like break down these conversations so we can learn the art of dialogue, you know, and, and really beginning to, you know, look into the Quran much better than what we're doing. And so that's very good. And and that and that's the point. The point is for us to explore the Quran. I wanted to find a topic or a discussion that would keep us connected to the Quran. So you you basically need the Quran every night to be able to attend these lessons. And it would probably be a good idea for you to read just from the Quran ahead of time. I don't want you going back reading tafsirs because what happens is you start to confuse yourself. So you come back and you say, Well, I read in this tafsir. What I'm going to present to you is, is a combination, is a, is a collaboration of different tafsirs, much like what I did with the story of Yusuf. I don't just read tafsir Ibn Kathir or tafsir al-Tabari or tafsir this or tafsir that. I go through at least eight or nine tafsirs. And then I look at the consistency between what all of the Masfasirun are saying. And I look at and I take from the consistency and then, of course, there are some other things that they mentioned that are very intriguing that maybe someone didn't mention here or someone didn't mention there. So when you go back and you read and you just what you end up doing is having one perspective. And then when somebody mentions something that is beyond what you read, it's like, well, I didn't read that. It's like, you know how many Tepsir books are out there? You only read one. Don't restrict me because you were restricted. Don't say, well, I never read that. OK, well, that's that's on you. Right. One of the scholars of hadith, he quoted a hadith to the particular scholar. And the scholar said, I don't know that to be from the hadith of the Prophet. 
And he said, have you memorized all of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ? He said, no. He said, well, then make this. He said, well, then how much have you memorized? He said, I memorized half of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. Half of the hadith that are out there narrated on the Prophet, I memorized. He said, well, then make this hadith from the half that you didn't memorize. <laughs> right? you, you, nobody knows everything. So don't say, well, I didn't read that in the tafsir. Where does it say that at? Like, no, it's there. I promise you. Will there be a transcript for the hearing impaired? I wish. If there's someone out there who would like to uh, join me, you want to come on live, I will plug you in in live, and you want to do um, you want to do some translation for the hearing impaired, I am all for that. I am all for it. So if there's someone you want to email me, inshallah, reach out to me, inshallah, and I will, I will plug you in every night. I will just... Um, um, I will just let you in and you can you can come in and you can do the sign language for the hearing impaired. I would actually love that. That would actually be great. All right. What time the classes will be from 6 p.m. until Maghrib. Until Maghrib, inshallah. 6 p.m. until Maghrib every day, Six, with the exception of uh, Wednesday and Saturday. Wednesday and Saturday are my two days off. Uh, every other day, inshallah, ta'ala, we will have that. All right. Any other questions? Everybody solid about uh, the, the the art of dialogue and what the purpose of dialogue is? And you know, just going through some books that I have about writing and the style of writing and you know, writing styles and literary forms and things like that. Um, just kind of wanted to make a connection between you know what writers use dialogue for in their in their writings and how we can kind of identify those same things. If we look at it from that perspective, when we're reading the dialogue, so I, I wanted to kind of give that to you guys. If you already, I know some of you may have already known that, but I want for those that you don't, those that don't, I wanted you to use that as like your blueprint as we go along, so that you understand, you know, what this dialogue represents. Is this about pity and mercy and misfortune? Is this about conveying some type of concept or idea? So that when we're going through these things, you can say, all right, oh, oh, I get it. This is what this dialogue is about. So now you can you can follow along a little easier because now you know what the style of dialogue is for. You, you guys follow me. So it's, you know, it's important. And this is why it's important for us not to make a separation between secular knowledge and religious knowledge. We oftentimes make this mistake by separating, you know, oh, the, oh, I don't know how many times people say, oh, he quote non-Muslims. Like, don't look at the personality of who I'm quoting. Look at the concept. Is the concept of that particular quote found or rooted in our religion? Then alhamdulillah, it doesn't matter who said it. I don't necessarily look for personalities. I'm looking at the words that are being conveyed and does it align with our religion concepts that are in our religion? Some people have such a shallow outlook. It's like, oh, he quotes non-Muslims. Uh, yeah, because information is information. Information is free for everybody. I don't care who owns the quote. The concept is something that has been regurgitated generation after generation after generation. He didn't come up with the concept. Even the Prophet ﷺ concepts that he has given us in the Quran and in the Sunnah, uh, those concepts, we find them in many other religions. I came from Christianity. A lot of the concepts that we have in Islam, we have in Christianity. They're not new. They're just reworded in a different way. That's it. 
the same, the same exact concepts. Because the source of all knowledge is who? Al-Alim. <laughs> the source of all knowledge is Al-Alim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Allah says in the Quran, وَفَوْكَ كُلِّ ذِي عِلْمٍ عَلِيمٌ And above everyone that has knowledge is someone more knowledgeable. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All knowledge, the source of all knowledge comes from him. وَعَلَّمَ آدَمَ الْأَسْمَا كُلَّهَا And he taught Adam the knowledge of everything. The source, the asl, the source of all knowledge comes from God. Nobody has ownership or monopolized information. It all comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I don't care who said it. But we're so shallow and so lacking in understanding that we say, oh, he's quoting non-Muslims. So what? Did not the Prophet وسلم, and the Sahaba, they quote the Shi'r al-Jahiliyyah? Did they not quote the poetry of the Arab poetry from the pre-Islamic era? These were not Muslims. Go through any of the books of Nahu. Go through any of the books of Arabic grammar. The second source of Arabic grammar, and some scholars argue the first source of Arabic grammar, is Arab poetry. Because Arab poetry superseded the, Quran, the revelation of the Qur'an. Arabs spoke Fusha before the Qur'an. The Qur'an just came and, you know, just made it more beautiful and more poetic and, you know, more fluid. But Arabs had Fusha before the revelation of the Qur'an. This was the way that they used to brag and boast about how, you know, their greatness and their nobility through their poetry. You go through any of the books of poetry, you go through the, any of the books of Arabic grammar, they teach you Arabic grammar by using abiyat al-shi'r, bayt al-shi'r, lines of poetry. That's how you learn Arabic, classical Arabic. And many of those who say, oh, you, you quote non-Muslims, they can't even open a book of Nahu, can't even open a book of Arabic grammar and read to you a line, one line of poetry and give you the explanation and understanding of it from a grammatical standpoint. It's just it's ridiculous, man. But this is part of you know our journey to get past this hump. And I think that as a Muslim community as a whole here in America, especially amongst African Americans, which are the people that I cater to because this is where I'm from and this is where I tailor, this is the people who I tailor my message to. That is not that I'm restricting myself to that, but this is these are the people that I feel that are underserved in the Muslim community. They are most African-American Muslims are the most underserved population in the Muslim community here in America. That's just my belief in terms of resources, in terms of knowledge, in terms of scholars, scholarship. We are the most underserved community. And so forgive me for you know not turning my back on the places where I came from and the people who I grew up amongst. I'm sorry. And but I think that we have made tremendous progress, man. Tremendous progress. And I think that we have so so far to go, inshallah ta'ala, um, in terms of building institutions. If we want this knowledge, this information to be passed on from one generation to the next, it's, it's important, it's imperative that we establish institutions, schools, institutes, educational institutes whereby we can begin passing because me sitting in front of you guys and giving all of these elaborate lectures and giving all of this stuff, that's great. But all you guys are going to be left with when Allah called me back is a bunch of lectures you're going to have to sift through and try to make sense of. But if we're not putting systems in place where that information can be systematically 
passed down from one generation to the next, then we're going to always continue to reinvent the wheel, waiting for Allah to send us another, you know, student of knowledge from somewhere or somehow, you know, that's going to, you know, bring us back to the Quran and the Sunnah. We can't keep waiting for that. We have to do our part to make sure that this information, myself and many other students of knowledge who have spent countless years studying underneath scholars, have acquired the Arabic language, have acquired a, a basic understanding of Islam. How do we hone in on that and how do we Harness that, and then later on leverage that. How do we do that? And, and this is where we, this is where we're stuck. We got all of the greatest speakers and students of knowledge who can open up and give you all these elaborate talks with, you know, Arabic and can quote all these fancy scholars and sayings. That's great, great. But how do we hone in on that? How do we harvest that? And how do we leverage that? That's where we're stuck. Because we're lacking in institutions, we're lacking in resources. And I can't say that enough, man. And we will soon realize that when, you know, we're looking at people passing away now, when people my age and, you know, of my caliber of students of knowledge and imams start to pass away, and, you know, we'll be stuck like Abu Bakr watching those who had memorized the whole Quran being killed on the battlefield and they had to do something about it. What are we going to do? All of the memorizers of Quran are out fighting jihad. What if they die? We lose the Quran. What do we do? Abu Bakr said, you know what? Let's start gathering all of the Quran up. Hafsa, she had most of what the Quran was written on in her house. The Prophet ﷺ died and left Hafsa as the custodian of the Quran. Quran was written on parchment paper, was written on this and written on that. She had all of that stuff piled up in her house. Abu Bakr said, Hafsa, Zaid, go to Hafsa's house and go get everything. And let's put everything in order. And let's create a book. Because if all of those who have memorized the Quran die on the battlefield, you're stuck. That's where we are right now. That's where we are right now. What are we doing? Let's say, you know, this student of knowledge, that student of knowledge, that student of knowledge died tomorrow. This imam died tomorrow. You're praying his janazah tomorrow. What do we do? We want to just keep going back to his lectures on YouTube, keep going back to the lectures that's on social media? Or do we create an institution whereby we can hone in on that information, harness that information, and leverage that information in a way that will benefit us for generations? You know, all you guys that are sitting here listening, you need to reach out to your students of knowledge, whoever you are fond of, whoever you love, you know, we everybody got their favorites. Fine. Reach out to them and ask how you can assist. Ask how you can assist. Start transcribing stuff, putting stuff into book form, putting stuff into written form. We are not going to survive with social media. You're not going to survive with social media. If we don't have it in book form, we don't have it written down somewhere, as they say in the professional world, if you didn't write it down, it didn't, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. We're going to rely on social media, everything on YouTube, everything piled up on YouTube. What happens when YouTube closed or shut down, crash? You think that can't happen? That can happen. What happened when Instagram crashed? Before Instagram, it was Periscope. Periscope is no longer, don't even exist anymore. Now it's Instagram. There will come a time when Instagram will be irrelevant. 
The owners of Instagram may shut it down, may sell it to somebody else who may shut it down. All of our information is put on social media. Where are the writings? How do we even know that these students to knowledge, these imams, these people even existed? If all we have to show for is some, you know, videos on YouTube or some lectures on social media, reach out to your local students of knowledge, reach out to your local imams and ask how you can assist. That information needs to be written down, transcribed, put into writing form, put into book form. We should have tons of people who have been contracted to do this. Every student of knowledge, every imam needs to have someone under them or group of people underneath them that can transcribe their stuff, put into book form, put it into writing and published so that this information is preserved. Not just the information preserved, but the entire experience because writers write for the time that they are living in. And so it's not just a writing, but it's an experience. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a'lam. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama taslima kathira. Wa akhiru da'wana an alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And if uh, we will be uh, making salatu tarawih tomorrow, I will let everybody know, inshallah. I'll put a post out early enough to let everybody know, inshallah.